Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. My guest today is Nancy Bacon. Nancy is a teacher, instructional designer, and a learning strategist. Nancy and I talk about why learning is so important for nonprofits and for nonprofit professionals. Many people in the field did not set out to be a nonprofit professional. They were motivated by working on a particular cause, to solve a problem, or to set out to contribute to making the world different in some way. And then they got into organizations and they have to learn how to make a nonprofit work in order to be able to pursue their mission, whether it's working with a board, fundraising, or managing a project. And lots of organizations offer training to help nonprofit professionals do their jobs more effectively. Unfortunately, a lot of that training does not actually end up in a lot of learning because it's not designed in a way that aligns with how adults learn. And that is one of the challenges Nancy is trying to tackle in her work. I was struck by how Nancy advised organizations that offer training to move away from relying exclusively on the workshop to train people. And just like feedback is way more useful when it's delivered in a timely and specific manner, getting much closer to the time someone needs the item and offering them a tool or template to solve a specific problem is more useful. I know when I run into trouble with any technology tool, for example, that I'm using, I go to Google and to YouTube to try to help solve my problems. So I could take a workshop on all the tips and tricks in using Zoom, which will help me be aware of all the options available to me in the platform. But how much of all the details of the specific steps I need to take for features I don't use regularly will I remember when I really need it? And if I can go to a short video on YouTube on how to set up a poll, for example, then I'm good to go. In your organization, where are you trying to help people learn something new or change their behavior? This could be with the people you serve. It could be with your staff. It could be with your volunteers and board members. How might you break down what they need to learn into bite-sized pieces and make those supports available when they need them rather than when it's convenient for you to share them? Welcome, Nancy. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here with you. So uh, just to start us out, could you tell me what what really drew you to the work that you do and what what would you say is your why and what motivates you? You know, when I first thought about this question, I was thinking, what is this work, this work being nonprofits? And, you know, I think what drew me to that work is the same that drew draws many of us, and that is the desire to serve and to make the world a better place. But then, you know, I started to drill down into the question, and my work specifically is really at the intersection of nonprofits and learning. And so that got me really thinking about, you know, the larger story. And I have to say that that I have always been working uh, with one foot in two places. So I'm always like playing in two different sandboxes at the same time. And, you know, even going back to like, you know, you and I both went to Swarthmore and we had that experience. And I was an economics German literature double major. And people thought that, you know, that's crazy. But there was that desire to both play in the organizational development analytical world, but also to play in that world of like the human story and language. So I have found that that those two threads have carried me through and that, you know, having been a teacher and created learning programs and all that, you know, living in the world of learning, but also living in the world of 
nonprofits and so many nonprofit people are accidental nonprofit people, right? They start because they care about something and um, and then all of a sudden they have to do that compliance stuff or read a balance sheet or, you know, have a board that, you know, misbehaves or something like that. And so, you know, I really was called to this work of working at the intersection of learning and nonprofits and having a foot in both of those spaces and doing whatever I can to bring them together. Because I think ultimately that's how nonprofits are going to thrive. And yeah, you talk about that intersection um, and, and, and it sounds like you were you were a double major before that was super popular with everyone, <laughs> everyone having a double major. But so I, I and I, I appreciate how there are some people who are super focused and they, they have, you know, they have one goal. They, they have a clear sense of their purpose. And then there are others of us and I'll include myself who meander a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and I appreciate that sense of two focuses, not necessarily only one. But why, why do you think learning is so important for nonprofit organizations and professionals? So if we think about like, what are the big issues we want for nonprofits? We want nonprofits to be sustainable. We want nonprofits to integrate equity into their daily lives. We want nonprofits to collaborate. And we assume that they know how to do those things. We assume that it's just natural that they figure out how to work together or that it's just intuitive to integrate equity in, into their day-to-day lives. And we expect that while off, you know, they are often really struggling, particularly now during COVID times, just those day-to-day activities of raising money and finding volunteers and keeping your board meeting, that's hard enough. And then we put this other stuff on top of it. So I believe that there's a whole world of of understanding and knowledge and experience around adult learning, around behavior change, around psychology and how we move people to action. And that the only way we're ever gonna achieve our nonprofit goals is if we figure out how to take everything we know about learning and action and make sure that nonprofit people have that available to them that, you know, we've all been to those nonprofit trainings that are ghastly, you know, where somebody who's a really good fundraiser is just telling you want, want, want how to raise money. And so much time is wasted. Like if we could actually have excellence in learning every time, we're going to get where we need to go with nonprofits, I think. Yeah, I, I worked for a, an association for a while and the members were all people who worked with, they worked, they worked in higher education. And so they weren't, they weren't teachers, they weren't on the faculty side of things, they were on the student service side. And we had a very robust training program to train them in the basics of that field and all of the very intricate and arcane knowledge that they had to have around immigration visas and all sorts of different technical issues. And we ended up having to build out a whole program to train all of our, essentially what were subject matter experts into, and train them how to actually help people learn what they already knew. Mm-hmm. And what was the, one of the most interesting things in working with some of those groups was how, when you get a bunch of experts in the room, they want to talk about all the exceptions. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about the really interesting, intricate, 10% of the cases mm-hmm. that they experience. And so they want to share that with the audience, having forgotten that the audience doesn't even know the basics. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we kept having to steer them to the 
to what was to them was like the boring 80%, mm -hmm. you know, but like, what are the actual fundamentals of this? And then how do you help people actually practice it? So it's not just, you know, this big data dump of information, mm -hmm. um, but they actually have some some way in the learning that you're offering to, to practice what they're, you know, what you're asking them to then go back to the office and apply. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much really interesting research around that. There's really interesting research around kind of how information, how like what is knowledge and how does knowledge get created and what does prior knowledge, you know, what you already know will dictate what you can know. And so what does that mean if you have an expert in the room? There's another interesting statistic I read recently that experts tend to leave out 70% of what learners need to know. So because you're- Well, okay, so it, I, I, I guess that it was 80% yeah. and, and the research says it was 70, yeah. okay. But, but I mean, whatever that is, it just says that your best trainers are probably not your experts. I just did a curriculum development project this morning with wonderful people doing really important work in the world and they are making so many assumptions that I, as an outsider, I keep asking what, you know, may sound like dumb questions, but they're truly honest questions that I'm trying to understand so that I can help them teach others about their work. So that's the kind of stuff that if we can bring that research informed, you know, adult learning practice into nonprofits, we are going to get, it's going to be so much easier. Yeah, because there is so much that, that people have to learn and, you know, often are either accidental fundraisers or accidental marketers or accidental managers, uh, accidental managers of boards, mm -hmm. all of those things that, that come with nonprofit work. And yeah, there is no, you don't just walk in the office and drink, drink the water and somehow you've learned it all. So many, many organizations are offering training, mm -hmm. um, but is it actually resulting in people learning and being able to do the work better when they get back to the office? That, that's a great question. And, and, and I think that's a culture shift. So within the nonprofit world, we have very much a consumption mentality when it comes to training. Like you need to know how to fundraise, go to a training. Oh, I went to a training. Therefore, there's some assumption that your performance is going to be different. So, so I think a key piece to this is really moving to a place where we're, we're outcome-based, we're performance-based. Are, are people actually doing the job differently because of whatever we've put into place? But I think the other culture shift that needs to happen is moving away from workshops as the kind of the pinnacle of training. And, you know, I deliver a whole lot of workshops. This is, this is my bread and butter. And yet I am now consistently advising people to, to kind of slow down with the workshops and do much more around templates and tools and job aids and micro learning and really understanding the workflow. And it could be that a training is not what's needed. There's a, you know, a myriad of other things that you can do to improve performance that's outside of a training. Yeah, I'm thinking of an instance when I, I started a new job and um, the, you know, the, the time that I started that job, the, the organization, it was a small organization and they had a big event coming up. So they were particularly overwhelmed at that moment. And, you know, I wanted to be able to help out and chip in with the team. And they gave me a very discreet task that had to do with the, the, pro, the, the, the event that was coming up. And the fact that I had to go find that information based on an actual task that, and an actual product that was going to help 
the team, I actually remembered so many more of the things that I ended up having to go find than if I had sat in a room and people had just talked to me about it all. Mm -hmm. So that engagement with it and acting, trainers know things about what, you know, templates and tools and micro learning and job aids. Can you, especially micro learning and job aids, can you describe a little bit more about what you mean by that? And what those are? Yeah, so it really, I mean, they really are learning when you need it, not learning when that training is being offered. So that notion that, and I particularly like to talk about not learning just when you need it, but when your colleagues need it. So for example, you know, you wanna improve how your board raises money. And so you could send your whole board to some training and maybe some fraction of your board will go. And whether they apply that training is pretty hit or miss. Instead, what you can do is is record a short video with very outcome-based ideas. You know, as a board, I want you to do these three things, A, B, and C. And you make that video short enough that it fits within a board meeting. So we all train our boards to, you know, leave 10 minutes, 15 minutes for learning. And so why not provide them with the tools to fill that time and the supports that, that they then need? So then job aids would then support that. So that would be, what do you need to do the job? And as you mentioned, you have a checklist. It could be, you know, we talk a lot in the nonprofit where you go to meetings and, hey, you wrote that great fundraising letter. I stole it. And I'm using air quotes for the radio audience here. I stole it in order to, because it was such a great fundraising letter. But that's a worked template. That is a worked example. It's a job aid. And I think, you know, that's fine. That's working within that culture of sharing. So that's what I'm speaking of with job aid. Yeah, and I like the idea of, you know, and and making a video may sound kind of intimidating, but I've I've started using, um, you know, and this is a particular tool that's available right now, uh, one called Loom, where you can just make little short videos. Mm -hmm. It could just be a screen share, very easy. You push a button and it starts recording. And, you know, I, I've done that to, to tell team members, mm-hmm. oh, I'd like you to do this thing and I'm going to show you how to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're never, well, you're not allowed to have it be more than five minutes, mm-hmm. or at least on the account I have. Um, so that keeps me in that very short, mm-hmm. very focused um and, and then it's not hard to do it because I think, you know, video may sound intimidating, but if you keep it simple, it doesn't it doesn't have to be. And it can be, you know, we can make videos on our phone and mm-hmm. uh, easily on a computer. So it's it can be accessible for, for groups. It absolutely can. And, you know, all of us are Zoom masters now, right? Like we all got the certification that we, we know how to do breakout rooms. Uh, and so I've done short videos on Zoom where I, I'll teach a class and I might have a little bit of homework and or a little bit of explanation that I want to provide. So I'm just going to hop right back on Zoom and record myself telling them something. And then I upload it to YouTube so that so that they can access it that way. But I mean, there's tools all around us. Right, right. And what would you describe as a, a learning mindset for organizations? That's a great question. I think the first thing is to understand that that learning itself has research behind it. So education in general suffers from this problem, and it starts in K-12 education, where we all went to school, so we all know what good school is, right? And we're always anecdotal about it. You know, what should happen in third grade? Well, when I was in third grade, this happened. Or as soon as we have children, we then refer to that as our anecdotal experience, right? Well, my third grader, X. And learning in general isn't a professionalized 
we don't consider it as a profession. We don't think about it in terms of there are people who are actually expert in adult learning. And so when I think about workshop presenters or people who are training, I don't look just for content. We want excellent content. I want you to know your stuff, but I also want you to have that adult learning piece so that you are you have that mindset that that teaching itself is a profession. It is something to be good at. So I think that's the first piece for sure. And how would you, uh, you talked about the research being behind adult learning. What are some of the things if, if folks are not familiar of kind of some of the principles of adult learning, what would you name for them as like a good starting place to, to think about and how they might shift um, their training even just a little bit so that it's more like learning? Yeah. So some of the ideas that I love to play around with, so cognitive overload, where, you know, we know this, our brains can only handle so much. So we know that um, kind of intellectually, but how do we then integrate it in our PowerPoints? How do we integrate it into our delivery? Uh, Things like that. The other thing that I love talking about is forgetting and memory, that we tend to say, oh, I told you that, and you still haven't done it what's wrong with you? And we don't really acknowledge the fact that people only, you know, remember things and that we can do things to help them remember. And we can do things to decrease that forgetting curve. And that 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 right there could set you up for more success. So those are just two ideas that I like to play with. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't think I remember anything anymore. I just rely on, you know, the electronic to-do list that I update at the end of every day to make sure that I know what I'm supposed to do mm-hmm. the next day. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, <laughs> we all rely on that. And yet we still obviously have so much knowledge that we have gained over the years and, and all of that. I think, so another point that I, I just want to bring up and it, because it goes to something I said earlier, and that is the research around fast thinking and slow thinking. And that we tend to be very efficient minded. We got to just get it done. Uh, We tend not to make time for reflection. And it's the research by Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow. That kind of research and that kind of um, culture shift, kind of learning mindset is really going to help us to get where we need to go as a sector. So for nonprofits to actually embrace equity, to look at collaboration, to look at ways of to be sustainable. Um, We need that slow reflection time along with our fast thinking that we have just to get the job done. And can you give me an example of what that slow thinking, that slow, that reflection time might look like in a week of a, let's say a, I don't know, a fundraiser? Yeah. Well, and there's big chunks of time and, and small chunks of time and alone time and together time. So it might look like, you know, keeping your Wednesdays free of all meetings so that you can slow down and think about something. It might mean at the end of every meeting with your staff, you might carve out an hour to just think about what happened there and what you're going to do and really frame it around what are the key questions that you need to get answered. So that's building in time for you as an individual to address that that reflection. I love Paulo Freire, the Brazilian sociologist, talks about that connection between reflection and action. That reflection with no action is is some version of navel gazing, right? I'm paraphrasing. Um, And action with no reflection is uninformed. So you really need to have that reflection and action paired together. But in addition to that, I think it's important to reflect collectively, so to reflect together. And that might look like a board retreat. 
I'm sure you facilitate a lot of board retreats and, and gatherings like that. And having just that right level of collective reflection so that people are sharing their ideas together, I think that's also really important for nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes that's when organizations bring in someone from the outside, whether it's a board retreat or for a strategic planning process or to help them think through, you know, what their, you know, what their program outcomes are, what their theory of change is. And, you know, often folks are very focused on what the outcome of that process is going to be. But I think oftentimes it's the framing and the one giving people space to, to actually slow down and think and to have a shared conversation that can get to exactly what you were talking about before with where you're under, you're, you're, you're helping people say what their assumptions are, get those out loud, and to, to see whether there's there's shared understanding across the group. And so for me as a consultant, the quality of the conversation and the process is as important as a good product at the end of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And I think that's where, so good learning also has that level of accountability. I think a really interesting idea to think about is this whole idea of how to make learning stick, how to make kind of learning transfer, so to speak, happen, such that not only do they learn stuff, but they do things differently later. I mean, there's so many examples all around us, like um, so many people are learning how to sew, for example. The people want to learn how to sew masks and, and help out there. So you need to have the goal. I want to sew, you know, 50 masks for frontline workers. And then you have that reflection time of, okay, I cut out that, that pattern out of the New York Times, but I'm not really sure it's going to work. In fact, it didn't work the first time I tried it, so I had to remake it. Um, and then there's that accountability piece that who's going to make sure that you follow through and you actually do what you say you're going to do. So what friend is going to call you? to make sure you've got those 50 masks sewn. Learning in general can, can be uncomfortable. Change can be uncomfortable. So I love that idea that you're talking about around building a sense of group collaboration to hold each other accountable. Right, and then you know that, that product at the end um, documents the agreements that people mm -hmm. came to through the process. And so you can then check, it, check in on those and see, okay, are we, are we doing the things that we said we were going to do. And, and of course, then evaluate, you know, perhaps some of them are, you know, the things have changed and we need to refresh this. They're not as relevant anymore. But it's that, it, those processes really almost enable a, an organizational level learning where oftentimes people only think about learning as at the individual level. I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a key piece to this is that strategy. And I like to invite people to have their own learning strategy, you know, over the next year, hey, we're almost at the beginning of the year, you might think of, you know, over the course of 2021, what do I need to learn? And who's going to hold me accountable? But then you also have that organizational and I would even say sector level learning. So at the organizational level, um, if you want your board to help you raise money, for example, what does your learning program look like to support that? What is the group learning, individual learning? How are you going to really look at behavior change and how are you going to support it? Not just the learning in terms of workshops, but those job aids that we talked about earlier, you know, those tools that are going to help. At a sector level, I also think that we need a strategy and a lot of our nonprofit state associations or uh, sector level associations are hopefully trying to move the needle on things. And those guys having a learning strategy is also really important that alignment so that we actually get the movement that, that we need. 
And what are you seeing in terms of that? Are you, you seeing collaborations across those organizations to, to try to create that? Or I'm, I'm experiencing that the concept of a learning strategy is a new idea that a lot of a lot of associations or nonprofits or consultants even don't quite yet have that learning strategy. I, I see a lot of of these various groups just they put out a lot of work. So they're either doing trainings or they're producing, you know, white papers or checklists or whatever. But I don't necessarily see that there's a strategy behind it. It's more of a, I, I, what do you think? Would you say, is there a strategy behind stuff or is it just kind of churning stuff out? I mean, I think there are different levels of um, sophistication in, in that in that arena. And yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of organizations, if they have the luxury of having someone who's actually in charge of training or learning, um, you know, people come to that with various backgrounds and a lot of people don't necessarily have a background in, in adult learning. And so um, they, they, they replicate what they've seen mm -hmm. at many conferences, trainings, workshops of that. And, it, and it's so much easier to ask presenters to do something that is uh, very much a, uh, for the participant, what I you know have heard other people refer to as the sit and get, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just listening to lectures. And it, or panel discussions, all those things that we're very familiar with in terms of conferences. And, and it's very few organizations, I would say, are, are doing a lot that's, um, that really aligns with how we know, that, that bring that, that knowledge around how, you know, what we know about how people learn and how to, how to deliver that so, that so that there is some behavior change. And you, you talked about behavior change. I'm wondering what are some things that um, the research says actually supports that? Well, we talked about that accountability piece that that's, that's uh, important. There's some really interesting research around identity and, and moving people to, to be who they think that they are. So, you know, really interesting research from Robert Cialdini and Persuasion, for example, that that I hold up as a great example in the nonprofit sector. So his research, I forget the exact numbers, but it's something like, if I ask you for your email address on the street, would you give it to me? Chances are no. If I say, Carol, are you an adventuresome person? You'll probably say yes. May I have your email address? And the rate by which you'll give me your email address goes way up. And why is that? I've invited you into a certain identity that you now want to live up to. And, and Robert Cialdini provides lots of um, examples of that. And there's a great leading learning uh, podcast where they interview him for that. So, so, so that directly ties to the nonprofit world. When I first heard that podcast, it was at a time where leading board um, curriculum designers were talking about, you know, the failure of board members, that board members were not living up to their jobs. They were not raising money. They were not doing advocacy. There was some report card that came out that said they were failing. And I, I just found that so sad. Not that board members are supposedly failing, but that we missed the boat on inviting, calling out the courage that I believe all board members have. Board members are incredibly courageous to step forward and serve their community on the whole. And I just need you to be a little bit more courageous. Will you call your legislator? Will you call your friend and help, you know, fill up that table at our next gala? Why are we not using this notion of identity to lift people up and to celebrate who they are 
rather than push them down. So that's like, that's a long answer to your question about behavior change, but that's one little piece that, that sparked some ideas for me. Well, I guess that's, you know, kind of why you, I was just in a, in a session today where I was doing, I'm in the middle of a strategic planning process with the organization. And um, today's session was uh, helping them do visioning. So who do they want to be in five years? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they got elaborate that the things that they came up with were way beyond the capacity of the organization as it is today. But just imagining those things, um, I think, yeah, as you say, kind of creates those aspirational lenses to then say, okay, so what are the three things we can do, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we do have funding for, that we do have the capacity for, that'll get us a little closer mm-hmm. to that aspiration. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for having plans that are so aspirational mm-hmm. that they're, that they're just pie in the sky. But I think for a moment within the process to invite that bigger, like, what's the really big thing we're trying to do here? Right. Can be helpful. Right. And, and inviting people like we are an organization that is learningful, that is curious, that is um, that walks the talk when it comes to equity, like inviting people to say we are this then invites everyone to really get up behind that. And that's when you start to have behavior change. I mean, another example being James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits, he talks about, um, you know, if you're trying to change your behavior around exercise, it's one thing to change your routine. It's another thing to change your goals. But what he cites as as what all the evidence says is changing your or naming your identity. I am someone who exercises. That is more likely to get you into the habit of exercising and and habits are where it's at when it comes to behavior change, right? Like we don't want people to do things once. We want them to do it every time. So really understanding what we know about habits can really move boards and you know, nonprofits in general in the right direction. Well, and, and as you were talking about the the boards and, you know, the kind of the research is, oh, they're failing. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. There's so much angst around, you know, the um, what role do, do, is the board supposed to play? How are they supposed to work with staff? And it, it, it does sometimes feel a little punitive. So, you know, what is what is a courageous board look like? And and then you also name some very concrete things. And I want you to do this one thing. I want you to make one phone call to a friend to do this, mm-hmm. you know. So it's not only kind of an aspiration, but also something very concrete that is doable you can put on your to-do list you can check it off and get that you know whatever the hormone is the the hit when you when you've accomplished yes. something <laughs> absolutely <laughs> to feel good about yourself and then want to do the next exactly thing. and then you want to come to the next board meeting you want to you want to participate i have an experience with a board where every meeting is so incredibly negative that that many of us have just kind of stopped paying much attention to it how do we flip that? How do we make it such that we want to give? We want to come together. That's all. When I talk about learning, I want to be clear, and I should have said this right at the top. I'm talking about every single thing it takes to move people to action. So not just learning in terms of knowledge, but learning in terms of knowledge, skill, behavior, and really changing uh, our practice over and over so that we're, we're delivering on whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and so often, I mean, there's all the the nuts and bolts things that people have to learn to actually run the organization. 
But so often um, the programs that are being designed are their their ultimate goal is to produce some behavior change with the people that they're working mm-hmm. with. And and too often, you know, you'll see, you know, the 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 outcome as they understand this and they understand that and they understand the other. And of course, what we also understand about understanding Mm -hmm. is that it doesn't necessarily produce action. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. I love the article and and I forget, I think it was Brian Washburn who, who referred me to it a long time ago, and that is Change or Die. And it came out by Fast Company, um, uh, you know, an online article that I read. And it is so interesting because it talks about, you know, if I asked you to fundamentally change your life, change what you eat, how you exercise, blah, 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 would you do it? And I run this in trainings and people are often like, yeah, of course I would. Well, the research says no, you would not. Even if you were going to face a really painful, like open heart surgery, you would not change your ways. And so my kind of laugh line when I deliver a board training is, so if you're not going to change your life, your life to stay alive, why would you change your ways for a volunteer gig that meets once a month on Thursdays? You're not, right? So these are the kinds of things that I think are really interesting to think about internally. As you say, we're pretty good at thinking about our clients or our, you know, how do we get those folks out there in the community to do what we need them to do? We, we sometimes think about that, but then how do we think about it internally within our organization as well? Yeah, and I think if the as you talked about the fast thinking and slow thinking, if if people are just running at a, a million miles an hour all the time, um, you know they'll keep they'll keep doing they'll keep producing, but they're not taking that time to reflect on how is this working, how might we be doing it differently, what have we learned from all of this that we've done in the last whatever number of months, and all of this sounds. I mean, I think it sometimes. I, I can I can just imagine a little eye rolling going on. Oh, two consultants talking about this time to have reflection. I'm trying to keep my my organization afloat. Um, so you know what what where do I have the time? But I think um, even even organizations, I, you know, big organizations that have lots of resources, there is this pressure to just be moving all the time. And so um, I don't actually think it, it often doesn't necessarily have to do with the amount of resources, but more to do with the commitment to take the time. Well, there's certainly the commitment to take the time. And then how do you use that time that I think sure. that um, I don't want to, I mean, I, I, if you have the time, great, sit around and just reflect kind of emptily with a, a journal and just kind of imagine, but most people don't have that time. So then what I would say is even micro bits of reflection around kind of framing some big questions in front of you. And, you know, I've been teaching a curriculum development class. It's been super fun. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get people to, to think about is how, how do you live in that divergent phase? And you know this from strategic planning, right? Like how do you get people to just spend time in that divergent phase before they then start closing doors in the convergent phase? And how do you work on that skill of being comfortable in the unknown, being comfortable in that ambiguity, being comfortable just playing around with ideas? And so I think carving out that reflection time with a very clear sense that for 30 minutes, I want to be in that divergent phase to just really play around with all the toys in the toy box. And then after 30 minutes, I can start to, to narrow the scope as to what, what we will carry forward into our organization. 
Yeah, and I think, um, well, just for one, convergent and divergent, divergent being kind of opening it up and, and thinking of all the different possibilities, convergent as you converge and come to some agreements, mm -hmm. start culling down. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm often when I'm talking to people about brainstorming and some people love it and some people hate it. And so for the people who hate it, I was like, well, we're only going to do it for a set amount of time. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that we say things like, you know, there are no bad ideas, which, of course, we know there are bad ideas. Mm -hmm. um, you just can't do both at the same time. You need, to, you know, you need your brain needs to be able to go wild and then come back together. But even thinking about the the session that I, I did today, um, and we were we were less we were the very first session was all kind of going wide. And I warned them ahead of time. We are we are exploring today. We are not deciding. Mm -hmm. And then this session today was like we were doing a little bit of both. So, mm -hmm. but still mostly on the exploring side. Mm -hmm. um, and there was definitely at the end. You know, folks are like, I'm really eager to get to action. I'm eager to, you know, get tangible and to get make some decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I think even just warning them that that's where we would be in that two hours mm -hmm. helps a little bit with that sense of mm -hmm. can we just decide already? <laughs> right. But it, and it's that where, you know, that's where it's such a waste of time to make the wrong decisions. So there's times to make decisions and times not to. But but I think, I mean, you asked earlier about what's in that learning mindset. And I think part of that learning mindset is, is an appreciation for playing with ideas, a curiosity, a, a desire to kind of play in that space where anything is possible, but having a framework for doing that. So whether it's limiting the time or model thinkers is a new online uh, kind of list of great ideas. And I love it. And they just came out with a framestorming idea where it's not brainstorming open-ended, but it's framestorming where there's you put a frame around it with key questions. Another example I heard recently was what ideas would solve a problem, but get you fired. I love that. <laughs> right. I love that because it was funny. My husband's a school principal and, and he started to have lots of fun with that. You know, what are, what would solve the problem, but get you fired. And, um, and then the follow-up question is, okay, what, what would have to happen to make those things happen? Like, you know, then you drill down into each of those ideas and there are nuggets in there. Like you may not go all the way to the idea that would get you fired, but there may be little nuggets in there that are worth pursuing. And that could save you time. It could save you money. So those people who want to rush to conclusions and, you know, make those decisions, they may regret that if they see some of these other ideas come out. Yeah. And I think, yeah, brainstorming done well definitely has those framing questions that that set some parameters and kind of, you know, what's the playing field that we're mm -hmm. on right now? What, what are we considering? What's inbounds? What's out of bounds? That kind of mm -hmm. thing. So we'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So at the end of each episode, I play a little game where I ask a icebreaker question. And so I've got three out here and I'm going to choose one. Okay. So 
If you could buy your dream house, what is one weird room or feature you would have? I would have a little artist studio. Not that I'm a particularly good artist, but I like to hack at it. And I'm a, I like to sew, I like to paint, and I don't like cleaning up afterwards. So if I had my own room, I would not have to clean up. Well, I'd be in agreement with you. That's uh, one of the things I might do in the same space that I'm in right now is just to create. Although I don't think I could do painting because it would be a little too easy. <laughs> just to just to play around, and I and I uh, refuse the 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 term artist because it feels like that's way too much pressure. Yes, I'm just somebody who plays around with this kind of. Yes, stuff, but so. but I'm so glad that that you do because to go back to our our topic here of learning is we all want to have that beginner's mindset and there's no better way to have a beginner's mindset than to than to play around in a in a mode or a medium that's that doesn't come naturally so that's so fun yeah yeah so what are you excited about what's up next for you kind of what's emerging in the work that you're doing i'm really excited about three workshops i'm working on in march i have two with my colleague scott schaefer he is a finance wizard and we're running a class on mergers and on finance strategy so both excellent and then to go to our conversation earlier, I am teaching a learning strategy class, and I am very excited about that. Well, excellent. People can learn more about that, and uh, we'll put we'll put links in the show notes so that you can everyone can find Nancy and find out all the good stuff that she's doing. So, well, thank you so much. It was great having the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I appreciated Nancy's point that there is no learning without reflection. When I was in graduate school, for every class and for every paper we wrote, we also had to write a reflection piece, and I hated doing the reflection. I just wanted to hit submit on the paper and be done with it and move on to the next subject. But as I think back on my time in school, what I remember more is what I highlighted in my reflections. And from that experience, I became a convert to a regular reflection practice. I built my own weekly reflection tool, and you can find it on my website, gracesocialsector.com, under the Programs and Resources section. There's a weekly reflection tool you can download, as well as a six-month reflection tool. I also have a tool you can use to create yourself a professional learning plan. And like most converts, I have become a little reflection obsessed. I capture my wins daily in a little notebook, My week doesn't feel complete without going through my reflection tool and noting my learning for the week and setting my intentions for the next week. And I was in a mastermind last year that had us do a monthly reflection that I've now added to that rhythm. And now I have many years of my big sheets of six-month reflection practice and notebooks of my weekly reflection. And when I'm doing visioning for myself for the future, I find it really useful to review these six-month, monthly, weekly reflections to remember where I was, how things have shifted, and what I've learned and mastered over time. What reflection practices do you have that help you realize what you're learning and how you're growing? Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and we really appreciate it.